We'll turn with me once again, if you would, to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, this letter uh, from the Apostle Paul to young believers in new churches or fairly new churches in the region of Galatia in the first century. I remind you that this is a letter that uh, would have been originally heard in, in one sitting, in one reading, and yet we've had the privilege uh, of digesting and savoring it over weeks and weeks and weeks. And we come this morning in our study of this book uh, to what is regarded by many as the most difficult passage in the letter. And it's difficult because I think, first of all, there is a quite a bit of Old Testament knowledge uh, in this passage that is just assumed. And Paul could assume it because he knew that his original hearers were well-versed in the Old Testament stories and, and characters. For us, it's a little more difficult, particularly for us who didn't grow up in the church. But the difficulty also lies in the way that Paul interprets these Old Testament characters and, and their stories, and that's a challenge that we'll talk about in just a minute. And before I read our passage for this morning, I want to just remind us that this letter uh, has a theme, of course. Paul is making an argument. He is defending himself, but he is also defending, more importantly, the gospel that he has proclaimed to these people. And so this theme, week after week, has been showing up. It's, it's, it's been echoing and rippling out throughout the book, and you'll see that again this morning as Paul continues to hammer down, or hammer home his case. And it boils down to this, and I know I've reminded you of this more than once in our study of this book, but it boils down to this. Where do you put obedience, or where do you put the law in the gospel equation? For Paul, Jesus plus the gift of faith equals salvation. Done. And then from that salvation that we have received through Jesus and Jesus alone by our faith in Him, a faith that was given to us by His Spirit, obedience flows in whatever imperfect form it does. But for the Judaizers, for these false teachers who are going into these churches, the equation went like this. Jesus plus faith plus obedience equals salvation. And Paul says, absolutely not. So let's jump back into Galatians chapter 4, which is the chapter we're in the middle of. We're going to finish out that chapter uh, this week. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through the end of the chapter 31. And I'd invite you uh, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Listen and follow along as I read. Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. 
One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband." Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as it is at that time, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Over the past several years, with the ever-expanding influence and usefulness of the internet, Various tools have come available to explore one's family story, and and perhaps you've used one or more of these tools. What once had to be culled from old documents and and long conversations with, with the oldest members of our families now can be done through a few simple clicks and, of course, a valid credit card number. And so we have things like Ancestry.com and MyHeritage.com, OneGreatFamily.com, FindMyPast.com, and my personal favorite, at least in terms of names, is Genes Reunited. I bring this up because Paul does a little bit of his own family research here in Galatians chapter 4, doesn't he? And he reaches conclusions that are relevant not just for the first century hearers, though these conclusions hit them in a little different way than they hit us this morning. No, he reaches conclusions that that affect all of us. No matter our race, no matter our past, no matter our family history. You see, family ties, which is the title of today's message, family ties is, are, are what's on Paul's mind at this point in his letter. Remember a couple weeks ago, we were reminded of the, of the privilege of being sons, adopted into the family, able to call our Lord, Daddy, Father. And then just last week he spoke, Paul did, he spoke like a mother himself in verse 19. If you have your Bibles there, you can see it. When he says, little children, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So as we meditate on these words, difficult words this morning, you're probably scratching your head, what in the world does this mean? Well, hang on. With that background in mind, the family ties, I have two encouragements for us to hang our thoughts and our meditation on God's word this morning. And the first one is this. 
Abandon your family of origin. Abandon your family of origin. Now, of course, I nor Paul are speaking of walking away from your biological family. What I think Paul is getting at, what I'm trying to put before us front and center, we might say, leave behind your family of flesh. You see, for Paul, as he writes, all the world is essentially divided into two by this passage. Descendants of one of two sons. Not, not natural descendants, not biological descendants, but, but spiritual descendants. And again, uh, just like before, Abraham The character Abraham is front and center. He's one of the most well-known and one of the most pivotal figures in Jewish history. His name's come up several times already, but it's here in this passage that his story is really fleshed out for us, namely these two sons that were born to him, one by the slave woman Hagar named Ishmael the other by a free woman, his wife, Sarah, and his name was Isaac. It's these two births that frame the entire section that we just read. As Paul takes the historical circumstances of their lives, walks us through them, but does so allegorically. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Let me just remind you of the facts because I realize not everyone is up to speed or remembers well the story of Abraham. We've got to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 12 when Yahweh, the Lord, called a man named Abram and he told him that he was going to make him into a great nation, a great nation that would be a blessing to others. But as Abram, who was eventually named Abraham, as Abraham got older and older with the reality of offspring not being present in his life, the reality of that promise that Yahweh had made was suddenly called into question. And it's this that prompted the first son, Ishmael. Ishmael, whose mother was not Sarah, Abram's wife, but was Sarah's slave, her servant, Hagar. And here's how the thinking went. Genesis chapter 16, Sarah says to Abram, her husband, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So let's stop right there. Paul is making the point here in this passage that this action and the resulting birth is illustrative of one way to deal with God. It's that way that is your family of origin. It's that way that needs to be abandoned, Paul says. And how did he get here? Well, he got there by allegory. Now, you remember allegory from middle school English or high school English. Allegory uses 
stories and symbols to point to hidden meaning and in our context to spiritual reality. So one of the most famous allegories that we think about in the church is Pilgrim's Progress, a classic book that we studied some years ago with its colorful characters like Simple and Sloth and and fascinating places like Vanity Fair and the Slough of Despond. You see, Bunyan made those names correspond so easily to what they are supposed to point to. But for Paul, it's not so clear. Which makes us nervous. (laughs) And it ought to make us nervous. Not about Paul's use of it, but about taking allegory and just making allegorical interpretation something that we do when it comes to the Scriptures. This is a little bit of a tangent, but we need to be careful at what we see Paul doing here. A lot of, of butchering has been done of God's Word in the name of allegorical interpretation as people look for hidden meaning or representation around every corner and miss, in turn, the plain meaning of what the Bible is saying. One of the early church fathers was guilty of this. Augustine, in his understanding of the Good Samaritan, said that the man on the road was Adam, that the robbers were the devil, that his beating was his falling into sin, that the priest who walked by was the law, that the Levites were the prophets, that the Samaritan was Jesus, that the inn was the church, that the innkeeper was the apostle Paul. And in doing all of this dissecting, What he missed was the plain reading of the text that Jesus says, love your neighbor, and who's your neighbor? Even the one who is not part of your tribe. So Paul is not giving a class on how to interpret the Bible. He is not giving a class on biblical interpretation. Nor is he encouraging us to find a representative or representation of something else in every Old Testament character or story. Rather, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he is pointing out by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit again what for him is plain to see in this story. So now back to the line of of Ishmael. According to Paul, what does the whole story point to? Well, there's a progression that he walks through in this section. The slave woman Hagar and her son Ishmael, the old covenant at Mount Sinai, and then finally present day Jerusalem. It begins with Ishmael, who represents simply taking matters into your own hands. Right, he was born according to the flesh. Ishmael represents works. And this kind of effort falls in line with Mount Sinai, with the covenant that Yahweh made with his people at Mount Sinai when he gave them his law. In other words, Paul is saying, focusing on the law as the Judaizers are doing in these churches exhibits a certain way that you are relating to God. For the Jews, as long as we keep the law, we're good with God. 
Their status is spiritual, physical, excuse me, physical descendants of Abraham and their allegiance to the law of God. That is what kept them safe. That is what gave them salvation. So continuing the progression, Jerusalem, the earthly city that existed in Paul's day, the place where the temple was, becomes for those who rely on themselves or on their own pedigree a representation of the slavery to rituals and to the law. And therefore, it's not what God intended it to be. All of this, Paul says, this line of origin, these works of flesh, needs to be abandoned. For Jesus has come. A new covenant has been realized that has trumped the old. It's a choice between slavery and freedom. Listen to Jesus' words himself in John chapter 8. He says to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, we will, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So this interpretation, this allegorical interpretation from Paul underscores Jesus' words to the Jews. Your pedigree, your performance don't matter. It's abiding in Jesus. So abandon your family of origin. Abandon your family of flesh. Abandon your striving to meet God's approval and look to an alien righteousness. That's what Paul is saying. The old way of doing things, the way that we operate in our world, right, is you perform to receive privilege. That's not how the gospel works. In fact, Paul says, it's a denial of Jesus. So if we're not supposed to claim descent from Ishmael, spiritually speaking, if we're supposed to abandon that family line, that family of origin, the family of flesh, then where do we go? Well, that leads us to the second encouragement. Embrace your royal heritage. Embrace your royal heritage. One of my daughter's favorite movies when they were little girls, and it was on often in our home when they were younger, was the movie The Princess Diaries. Remember that movie? It was Anne Hathaway's, you know, that was her first big on the scene, here I am. It was the story of Mia Thermopolis, a shy and awkward American teenager who learns out of the blue through a visit from her estranged father's mother 
that she is the sole heir of the European kingdom of Genovia. Wealth, standing, a beautiful kingdom now lay before her, and the movie seeks to answer the question, will she take hold of the inheritance that is hers? See, Paul's doing the same thing here with the church and calling them back to the gospel. He says what you and I are in verse 28. You are children of promise. Through simple faith in Jesus, through the supernatural birth that has come by the Holy Spirit, you and I are related to Abraham, to Isaac, to David, to Mary, the mother of Jesus. We are related to them. We are heirs of all the promises of the Old Testament. And it comes to us because of the other son, because of Isaac. The Isaac, the one who was born through promise, through God's miraculous work. And it was one for us through the new covenant ushered in by Jesus. You see, Isaac's birth represents a totally different way of dealing with God. Namely, it's actually God who deals with us. Kind of harkens back to what we talked about last week that Paul says it's not that you have come to know God, it's that you've been come, it's that you've been known by God. We are born, verse 29, according to the Spirit, not by the flesh. And so through Jesus, by faith, this, this royal heritage has simply fallen into our laps. And now suddenly we have a new family, one not defined by race, but by faith, family characterized by rest, not effort, and intimacy with the Heavenly Father that allows us to call Him Dad. We have a freedom not to be enslaved by the requirements of the law, but freedom to strive after God's will with an obedience that flows from his love, not an obedience working to acquire his love. We have a future, a new Jerusalem. You see, Paul makes the same progression through Isaac that he does through Ishmael. And he arrives at the new Jerusalem, not a city on earth, bound up in ritual and requirement, but one above, an eternal city, a heavenly kingdom, the capital of that heavenly kingdom, a city existing as God intended it to exist with this diverse family dwelling together in the freedom that Jesus alone brings. This is what the writer of the Hebrews envisions in Hebrews chapter 12. For you and I have not come to what, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And so Paul's point is simply embrace. This royal heritage. 
Abandon your family of origin. Abandon your works of flesh. And amazingly enough, Paul even brings up here that this message of free grace is not a popular message. Paul reminds his original hearers of the first century of that fact here. Just as the older brother Ishmael in Genesis chapter 21 mocked his younger brother, so Christians will be mocked. And Paul tells the Galatians not to tolerate it. He's speaking of the mocking that comes within the church from Jews to those who look in faith to Jesus. The gospel isn't to be messed with. Those who preach a gospel other than Jesus Christ alone need to be taken out lest they lead others astray, just as Sarah told Hagar to leave with Ishmael. And so embracing your royal heritage involves casting out your family of origin. The old is gone. The new has come. That's Paul's point in this passage. We skipped his sarcastic question that opened up this section, right? Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, so you want to be under the law, folks? Well, let's talk about what that means. And what Paul has shown them, what the Scriptures themselves have shown them, is that there is no life in the flesh. That going at it alone is a dead end. So abandon what was and embrace what has been given to you. Sons and daughters of the King. That is our reality. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this difficult passage, but a beautiful reminder of what we have been given in the gospel, of who we are by faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that we too easily, Father, we're conditioned this way in our, in our world, in our jobs, with our families, even with teachers, we, we gain privilege by performing. And when we don't perform, we're put in our place. But you, Lord, you turn that on its head. And you say, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ accepted us. Not because of what we have accomplished but simply because in our weakness and in our dependence, we have grabbed a hold of what has been given to us. Oh, Father, may this message of free grace change us and move us. For the glory of your name and for the good of your church, I pray. Amen.